0: Well, if we know that that audience is working well, how can we create more creatives that go after that particular audience? Meaning, you know, everyone has a different buying, I, I call them transactional triggers. Everybody has a different reason or is triggered to transact in different ways. And if we've got this one ad that's like crushing it, we've got to realize that that one ad is only really talking about one type of transactional trigger. So if we can understand the the transactional triggers of our prospects, what if instead of just having one ad at $100 a day going to that audience, what if we had two or a three or four, right? So now we're spanning that audience even bigger and we're trying to tap on different transactional triggers so that more people start buying.
1: Hi, welcome to the building Big put podcast where we're going to grow learn how to grow yourself and your business and uh, this is really about um, kind of unlocking your your potential and also hearing the stories of uh, people who have uh, gone before us and they've grown in their own business and their own world and uh, getting to learn from them and even just uh, you know uncover maybe a soundbite or, or something here or there that might for yourself, give you the insight that you need as you're you're on your own entrepreneurial journey. So without further ado, I want to welcome uh, Nick. He is an awesome guy. Uh, something, little known fact, is, he's probably the most, pro, uh, I'd say, fastest mountain bike progression I've ever seen. <laughs> Literally, you had been mountain biking for like, uh, I think he said it was like your sixth time. And we're going up Smith Creek, and you were hitting like all the jumps and the drops and uh, stuff that I was literally taking a second look at. You just went and and, and sent it. So, <laughs> so that's a true story. Uh, yeah. So you you are obviously very talented at sports too. So that's that's cool. But you've you've grown very successful business on the uh, Facebook ad side sure. and uh, and beyond. And I always see your license plate last. Uh, so I'm. <laughs> So I'm sure we'll dive into that a bit, but before we do, um, why don't we start, uh, with yourself, your story and, and start like at the beginning, like maybe even as a kid growing up, like, um, did you always know that you were going to get into entrepreneurial career or, or what was, what was, uh, life like growing up and, and where did it go from there?
0: Yeah, no, I had no idea. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a policeman, like every other boy or a fireman or something like that. I thought that was the way to go. Um, I didn't know it at the time because, again, when you're growing up and you see your parents, like you think everybody just has a job and everyone's job is the same. What I didn't realize at the time, though, was that even before I was born, my father was entrepreneurial. I mean, he wasn't an entrepreneur, but he was entrepreneurial in that he was a salesman, the top-performing salesman of a company called Canada Cup at the time. Now, they don't exist anymore, and just just dates him a little bit, maybe dates me a little bit. But these were there was a company that sold paper cups to large corporations. So you'd go to a corporation, they need to supply paper cups for you know, their coffee areas or whatever. And at the time in Canada, little know, like I see this in hindsight now, little did I know that he was a top performing uh, salesperson in his organization and he was making bank. So wouldn't necessarily call him an entrepreneur, but you'd call him an Entrepreneur, like an entre- an entrepreneur within an organization, he was a commission-driven only salesperson. So it was up to him to kind of produce the goods. And again, from what I was told before I was born, that's what he was doing. When he met my mom, you know, they bought a nice big house, you know, comparatively, and they were just kind of living life. And I think it wasn't until I was a few years old—I don't remember the date exactly—until I was a few years old, there was a merger and acquisition that happened. A bigger company bought Canada Cup, and as a result, they saw what was being paid to my dad. And they're like, that's way too much money for anybody to get paid. And so they kind of just cut him off. And I remember this being an extremely traumatic experience for my father to go from the highest of heights uh, where you can afford whatever you want, live a great life. And I was just born and you're supporting a new family here and and all that to literally having the the rug swept out from under him. And it put him in a very tailspin. In fact, now that I'm older and I see what happened, like this affected his life until the day that he passed. Um, so, you know, there was a little bit of that, let's call it DNA or genes in there. But right after that happened, him and my mom, who's an immigrant from Korea, couldn't speak the language very well, um, or English very well, uh, started their own convenience store, right? So they went off and they started it. And so again, another, a trait of entrepreneurialism without me even knowing it as a kid, but what I did know was what I could see. And what I could see wasn't very great. And what I mean by that is, you know, they had this convenience store that was open, 24 hours a day. And in order to do the, make the best of it, like mom did the morning shift from 7am to 7pm and dad did the evening shift from 7pm to 7am. Um, I would find myself when they could pick me up from school, they'd bring me right to the store. Sometimes I'd be sleeping behind the counter as my mom was selling cigarettes or lottery tickets or whatever was happening back in those years. Um, and so what I observed was, My parents working extremely hard, literally 24 hours a day, 20, you know, 12 hours each time. It was hard to see them and hard to work it out. And as a result of that, really not anything to show for it, right? We were barely making ends meet. I remember particularly one day when I was a kid, I said, mom, can we go to McDonald's get a burger? And she kind of brushed it off. And later did I realize she said that because we couldn't afford to go to McDonald's to get a burger. Um, so that was like my frame of entrepreneurialism. And I think it did two things in the, in the depth of my being at the time. Number one, it said it reinforced the story that money doesn't grow on trees and it's very difficult. And people who work for themselves have a hard time. Like That was a story that was embedded into my, my mind. But simultaneously, I carried this like other contradictory story that said, I will figure out a way to never have this happen in my family again right? So if we fast forward a little bit, and again, you know, Jonathan, cut me off at any time if we need to, to, to get more clarity on any of it. But fast forward a little bit, and my father had his first heart attack when I was four years old, um, continued to have health complications throughout my entire life. In fact, one time I was sitting in the hospital, I was probably 17 at the time in the emergency ward. My dad had another heart issue. And I ended up having a dialogue with the cardiac specialist on staff there i believe it was a resident because he seemed a little bit younger but we had a discussion i'm 17 at the time keep in mind and at the end of the whole thing the uh the cardiac specialist resident doctor at the time turned to me and said so where do you practice medicine and i said what do you mean i don't practice medicine he goes how do you know everything that you know to have an intelligent conversation with me about this and he said i basically grew up in hospital like my dad was in hospital for as long as i could remember in and out in and out emergency and all this kind of stuff so when I was uh, right around 17, 18, 19-ish, um, I don't remember exactly the age, but my father had his uh, third stroke, and this one left him blind on his left side of his body, um, and and partially paralyzed on on certain right parts of his uh, left parts of his body. And as a result of that, he no longer could drive, so his independence was taken from him. Uh, he couldn't see very well, obviously, because he's only seeing out of one eye. And there's just health complication after health complication after health complication. Um the result of that stroke meant that he could no longer work as well. So he had to retire volunt- un- you know, mandatory retirement, um which then made my mother the primary breadwinner of our family. Now keep in mind again, she couldn't continue running the convenience store that was barely making ends meet in the first place, um and she couldn't speak English very well. So I very particularly remember one day, it was a Saturday morning. I was at home watching TV, Again, I'm probably like 17, 18-ish at the time. Um, She had gone to do a job interview. I didn't know it, but she went to do a job interview to fold clothes at a laundromat. Um, And then she came back. She came to the house. She walked up the stairs. I'm sitting there, and she's kind of like holding back tears. And I said, Mom, what's up? And she didn't want to tell me. She finally then told me that she went for a job interview to, to fold clothes, and she got rejected from that job because she couldn't speak English very well. And I just made, remember making a decision at that point in my life that I'm going to figure shit out. Like I'm not going to allow my family, my father and my mother at the time was my family. I'm not going to let them go through this ever, ever again. And so that was like the beginning of me starting to inquire about ways to support my family. Again, I'm, I'm young, but I realized I had to be the primary breadwinner for my family. And unfortunately, when you're desperate and you're young and you're hungry, but you're naive. You jump into a whole bunch of stuff that uh, doesn't make sense, right? So I remember I saw an email that said, hey, like, you know, can we stuff envelopes and we'll pay you X amount of money? So I was like, yeah, sure. And I signed up for that. I signed up for network marketing things and I signed up for all these things. And of course, I had no idea what I was doing. I lost a bunch of money and I didn't make any money. But I had my first real break when I saw an ad in the newspaper that says, hey, you we'll, we'll pay you 17 dollars and 39 cents an hour now keep in mind when i was that age minimum wage was six dollars and 39 cents so this thing was saying it was going to pay me 17 dollars i'm like oh my god this is amazing so i go to this job interview dressed up all nice not knowing what i'm getting into and i get to the room and in the room was probably like 20 or 30 other people ranging from my age all the way to like 60 year olds i'm like what on earth is this place and what am i getting into a guy gets in front of all of us He takes a rope and he cuts it in half with the knife. And he says, you're basically going to be selling these knives. This is what it is. And this is how the comp plan works. And little did I know is that I was sitting in a Cutco presentation to be a Cutco knife salesman. And essentially, if anyone knows anything about Cutco, it's kind of like door-to-door referral-based selling really, really expensive knives. And um, let's fast forward just a little bit. I'm like, okay, well, if I get paid $17 an hour for this, let's just book it. Like, this is going to be my way out. And so... I started trading and I started doing the process and they have uh, uh, a knife set called the ultimate. And the ultimate is the biggest knife set they have. It could have changed by now. This was years ago. And it's literally a $2,300 knife set. Now my mind was like, who the hell in their right mind is going to spend $2,300 on a knife set called the ultimate. But long story short, (laughs) I started selling these things because they're like, you could sell one knife, you could sell this basic set, or you could sell the big set. And of course, if you sell the big set, you make more money. So I was like... Why would I even bother with the other stuff? Let's sell the big set. And uh, my nickname was quickly coined Mr. Ultimate because that's all I would sell. I raised up through the ranks quite quickly and got to the point where six months in, again, I'm probably 18, 19 years old at the time now. Um, I, I climbed up through the ranks so quickly that they wanted to offer me my own branch office. And I was like, cool, let's figure that out because you now you get a commission override on all the people that you support. Anyways, the the at the same time, I was also pastoring a church and this branch office thing was going to take 80 hours a week. Like it was not, not child's play. Uh, but I started to see some resemblances kick it. You know, my father was a salesman that sells cups. I became a salesman that sold knives. Um, my parents were entrepreneurial in starting their own business. And I started getting this, you know, this bite for it. So I'll fast forward just a little bit and then I'll stop. But I realized I had to figure something out because I couldn't keep selling knives. Um, and I took a course from a dude named Corey Rudel, who, if you know anything about internet marketing, he was the grandfather of all internet marketing. He was the first person to ever sell something like an information product on the line and then taught other people who then taught people like, uh, Armin Morin, who would then at his big seminars taught the Frank Kearns of the world and the D- Dean Jacksons of the world and the John Reese's of the world. Again, if you're in the internet marketing space, you'll understand these names. If you don't just know that they were the tycoons who really led the way for us. But I took a course that basically said, hey, you should go write an ebook. And once you can write an ebook, you could sell the ebook for like 27 bucks or something like that. And then if it goes well, you could create a back-end course behind the ebook and sell that for 150 bucks. And I'm like, seems to make sense to me. So I wrote an ebook abroad, created a course behind the ebook. And then I thought, how am I going to sell this thing? And at the time, there was Google Ads which was like the only way to kind of generate traffic for this thing. But this was a little late in the game in the sense where Google had their panda slap and their penguin slap and all these animal slaps. And I was like, oh, I don't, I want to do that. And right at that time, right place, right time, there were two platforms that just released their ads platforms in beta. One was a company called Facebook and two was a company called plenty of fish, which was a dating site. And ultimately Facebook and plenty of fish said, we have all this data from our users We're going to take that data and make it available to advertisers who then want to target those data points and run ads. And back then was the wild, wild west. You could say anything and do anything. And so I started advertising my ebook on plentyoffish.com and facebook.com. And I started to see things happen and I started spending a dollar and making a dollar five back. And I'm like, okay, I think I'm onto something. Started continuing to spend a dollar, made a dollar 10 back. Spend a dollar, made a dollar 50 back. Spend a dollar, made... $2 $2 back. And I was soon trying to figure out how can I get more dollars to spend in order to make all this, you know, return. So I started doing that. Um, and then realized just got this like hidden sense, I guess you want to call it to say like, look, Nick, just choose one platform, plenty of fish for Facebook. And at the time I had no idea, I literally rolled the dice and I was like, huh, we'll go with this Facebook thing. And again, this is before Facebook is what it is today. So I dove in two feet in, in the beta platform, one of the first you know, first hundred advertisers, if you will, I can't validate that by proof, but I was a beta user of the platform and started rolling with that. And it started working fast forward just a little bit further. Um, and I thought everybody was making money on Facebook. Everybody just like, cause it was so easy. And I was at a conference one day and the person at the front of the room said, Hey, how many people here are using Facebook to grow your business? Um, And I think like 80% of the hands went up. I'm like, oh, cool. Like I'm one of them. Everyone else is doing this. And then the second question he asked, and this was the game changer for me. He said, how many of you found it profitable? And everyone's hand went up down except mine. Mine was the only hand that stayed up. And then a light bulb moment went off in the back of my head. I said, huh, if I can figure this out and I can help other people, I might have a business here. So people started coming to me and saying, hey, Nick, can you teach me this Facebook thing? I said, absolutely. And I started a consultancy, if you will, internet marketing consultancy, started teaching people about Facebook ads. And then people were like, Nick, this is too confusing. Can you just do this for us? And I said, I don't know, but I'm willing to try. And then my agency was born. And that was back in, gosh, 2011-ish, 10-ish, around there, Um Actually, a little bit before that, 2009 is when I started on Facebook. So, yeah, right around that time, and literally, my agency and my consultancy was born. Fast forward now to 2023 when we're having this conversation, and I still have my agency, and I still have my consultancy, and I call that decision way back then the $600 million decision. Because when you look back at the last decade of everything we've done for ourselves and our clients, as we generated over $600 million in revenue collectively, um, and you know one of the first movers on on the platform now well recognized as a person who understands this space and you know the get the, the rest i guess as they say is history so it's been it's been quite the journey
1: wow that that is quite the journey <laughs> so you um so you you must remember the uh changes that i mean obviously you remember the changes that facebook has made like how has that been just adapting to the constant um uh, change. You, you talked about your your parents and how they went from okay, we need to figure this out. Had a, a amazing uh, career being an entrepreneur uh, to suddenly finding themselves in or your dad finding himself in a position where the rug has been pulled out from him. He starts this um, convenience store with your mom, and um, so that uh, that adaptive nature is that something you observed or, or like how how did that feel as Facebook was making changes? uh, throughout those, uh, that last decade.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know what? It, it, I've never, I guess because what life has thrown at me, I've never been opposed to challenge. I almost welcome it because I realized as hard as things were, um, when I come out of the other side, I come out better and stronger. And the only way for, and again, this could be a narrative I'm telling myself and maybe it's wrong, but growth happens outside of your comfort. zone. growth happens when you're put through the ringer. And, and again, so I'm not necessarily every morning inviting, you know, challenging times to come into my life, but I recognize that life is not easy and challenging times happen. Um, you know, we could get to a whole nother rabbit trail of, you know, I lost my father um, not long after, so I was like 19, 20-ish when I lost my father. Um, again, all the health complications took um That was a very devastating experience for me. You know, some might call that traumatic, um, very difficult, you know, situation for me. Um You know, a story I didn't tell was a very difficult marriage that went south for me. Found out that my wife was having extramarital affairs while we were together for the three years that we were married. That went very sour and we're not together. You know, I have a new wife now and a wonderful family and a beautiful life. And Thank God that that all happened. But again, at the moment of that time, things were very, very difficult for me. And there were many times, like being quite frank, um, where I was just like, is life worth living anymore? You know, and I even remember one night in the middle of the night going to Google and Googling, what's the easiest way to take your life? Because I was a coward. I didn't want the difficult way. You can always do something difficult. I was like, what's the easiest way? <laughs> um, and I, and I, so... I figured it out. <laughs> there, there, there's easy ways. I want to share them here. But um, I remember thinking through writing my, my suicide letter and passing it on to my mom and the people around me and saying, look, life is not worth living anymore. Like, I see zero reason to keep going. Um, so, so hardship has always been a thing in my life. And so I figured, you know, obviously I made the decision not to do that and not to go through with that, but I made the decision well, let's, to let's say, let's
1: dive, dive into that for a second. Like, what, like, so how did you make that decision? Like what, what, what happened for you to shift, um, away from like, like depression ending in, in the grave to, okay, you know, maybe there's something here.
0: It's a great question, and I think the only way I can answer it is remember, like I'd just gone through my divorce, and it was a very difficult experience. Um, a lot of things intermingled with that made life very difficult. And I remember what you realize in those kind of a times, when you're going through and you're put in a difficult situation, you really begin to understand who your friends are and who cares about you and who loves you versus who doesn't. right? In those times, your enemies and/ or your associates end up asking, what can I take from you? Or what can I talk about you? And I had one person give me some really good advice and said, Nick, if anyone comes to you and asks for details, they are not a friend. A friend is someone who says, I don't care what happened and I don't care how it happened. I want you to know that I'm here for you and I love you and I have a shoulder for you to cry on if you need it. And that kind of opened my eyes. I was like, huh? Because there are a lot of people like, oh, so what happened and how did it happen and why it happened? I'm like, ah, like they're not friends. They they they're they're here to disrupt in some way. But I had a handful of people who literally came to me and said, Nick, does it matter? And I don't care. I just want you to know that I'm here. I'm here to support you and I'm here to see you through to the other side. And I think if it wasn't for those people um in, in my life, and again, oddly enough, some of those people are no longer in my life. They were there for that season and I needed them for that season and we've all moved on to different things. I still love and cherish and care about them. They're just not regulars in my life. Um but that is what did it. It was having people around me and who just said, Nick, I'm going to love on you no matter what. And so if whatever it takes, I'm going to love on you through this. And fortunately they did. And so I came out the other side.
1: Community had a huge impact, like having the right.
0: Yeah. and, And it's, it's funny that you bring that up because, you know, we now live in the same, the same city. Um, I, I was born and raised in Toronto, Canada, and it's a big city and a lot of great people and a lot of great things happening there. And I thought I would be 416 for life. Like it was my hometown and I was going to die there, have my grave plotted there. Um, and it's interesting because I had a lot of friends, but I didn't have very many close friends and I didn't realize that at the time. Like it wasn't like, Oh, I don't have any friends. It's like, you think you, who you have are friends. Um, but I didn't have that community until I realized when I moved to Kelowna. And I moved to Kelowna and one of the first things I realized, like, so, you know, amongst my my close friends here, um, and I've never had this before, I have people like our good friend Dan Martel, for example, like he will show up my at my house unannounced, untext, no notice, just show up at my house. He won't even bloody knock sometimes. So just walk himself into the house with his kids and he says, Nick, I'm here, let's have dinner together. Or, hey, we're going to use the pool or, hey, let's just hang and talk. And. Back in the day, that would frustrate the hell out of me. I'm like, my home is my home. I'm like, what are you doing? Get out of my but <laughs> You know, ha- having, having lived here now, like that is a relationship I have with people that I now call true brothers, like people I would die for. I have family, friends, that are the most important thing in the world to me. And I'm seeing the other side of this now where like if any one of my guys or gals or our families in my world, you know, went through a hard time, I'd be the first to say, hey, doesn't matter. I don't care. I'm here for you. So, you know, Jonathan, you mentioned... Community. It's something that I didn't really have until I moved here. And now that I'm here, I realize the big gap that was in my life until I had this. And now that I have this, like I'm at a whole new level of fulfillment. I'm at a whole new level of inspiration and motivation. Cause I believe a lot of like motivation, even business motivation, but business motivation, inspiration, all these types of things. I think some of it can be like learned or taught, but most of it can be caught. And the biggest lessons I've learned from my friends here is not when we're sitting down at a board table saying, hey, let's talk about business and see how we can improve things. The biggest lessons I've learned is, like you said, when we're out on the mountain bike trails and we're climbing, you know, for an hour up Smith Creek and we're having a conversation about, hey, like what's happening? How's this going? Or I remember I was in line because we had taken our families to go watch some movie. I don't even remember what movie it was. We're in line for popcorn and I'm talking with, I think it was Dan at the time. And we, he said it was a Monday. It was a Monday holiday. That's what it was. And he said, hey, uh, Nick, are you are you working today? I'm like, yeah, you know, I am because Mondays are my delivery call days and I've got all this stuff to do. And he said, Mondays? Why would you do that? I said, what do you mean? He goes, you should always stack your busiest days in the middle of the week, i.e. Wednesday, and work your way outward. to make Wednesday your busiest day and then Tuesday and Thursday your second busiest day so you can have Monday and Friday for extended weekends should you want to. And I'm like, what a simple idea. So I changed my entire business and make my most busiest delivery day and call day and everything on a Wednesday. In fact, today's a Wednesday. <laughs> We're having a call on a Wednesday, like everything. And that happened because of a conversation I had waiting to buy popcorn at a line for a movie on a Monday. And so again, I'm just, there's this, this greater appreciation. And I think Cologne is great for this. I mean, like me and you met on, I believe original Anna a mountain bike trail and Bunch of other places, and I talked to your brother about bow hunting and all sorts of stuff. And like, I know we don't even know each other that well, but it's just an open community, mutual friends, everybody's here to support everybody. And there's just something super powerful and unrated about having a tribe not just a business tribe that people you talk to and you see at a mastermind, but I'm talking about a tribe where you bring your children up together, where you break bread regularly. Where you're out wake surfing and mountain biking, do living life together. There's something just super powerful about that that I had no idea until I moved here.
1: Yeah, there there is um yeah, there's there's something there's something special about uh the community. And I uh I I, I agree with you. It it is something really cool when you can just like be around people and you can break bread together and just hang out and you you're you're real and there's no um uh there's, there's no f- uh, falseness to any of it. So it's like, right. You know, that, um, the people around you, you, you know, who they are, you know, that they've got your back, you got their back. Like you said, they'd die for you. You die for them. Um, but you're not just saying that it's like, it's really that deep. And, um, and, but it's also that it, it's kind of like the way you're describing that relationship with Dan is, it, it sounds like it's, it's, it's like you're having a relationship with a literally a brother because it's, it, that's, you know, So I'm in business with my brother and, um, which I am incredibly grateful for, really, really grateful for. And one of the things people ask me, they'll say like, "How is what is that like? And I'm like, well, imagine being in business with somebody that you trust 110%. Like imagine being so, so in, in like how incredible of a feeling is that? And, and it would be like that if I were in business. I mean, my wife is part of it, but she's, if I had a business with her, it'd be the same thing. And so I've been married a long time. So I've, I, we got married, um, I was fairly young. And so I've been married 16 years this July, which is, wow. Yeah, wow. congrats yeah. And uh, nice. So it's, it's the, um, having that, those, those really close, like <clears throat> trusting relationships are really powerful because there's another side to it too, which is, um, we travel a lot for business and, you know, there's something about going on adventure with friends, which is, um, I, I, I just love that. It's, it's super, um, uh, it's really cool because it's not just business. It's you're creating memories. You're, you're, you're creating an experience. It's life and it's, uh, it's something you really enjoy. So I, I find that like, so super important. So how did you, um, you know, what I love about this, this format is I have no idea where it's going to go. At the beginning and then I love that and, too <laughs> but so how did you how did you kind of create a community so if because th- th- like I'm thinking about it for somebody's listening and they're in a position and they're they're realizing I need community in my life how how did you sure. how did you move from a position where um it sounded like it was a little bit dysfunctional to getting to a place where it sounds like it's a very uh it's a huge blessing
0: oh that's such a great question um and I wish I could take some sort of credit for it, but I can't you know, I think it's when, I mean, it was a perfect storm. So for example, the Kelowna example is there were a bunch of us that knew each other from business masterminds in the past, but we'd all lived in different places. So, you know, Todd lived in Manhattan, New York. Dan lived in Moncton, New Brunswick. You know, a couple of other friends, Dan Jacob, Dan Go lived in Toronto. Um, uh, Daryl Hicks lived in Montreal. Like, Matt Bertulli. So there's a bunch of people who lived in all sorts of places, and we'd see each other once a year. And we really connected when we saw each other once a year, but like that was the extent of it because we had a mastermind, and maybe we'd see each other intermittently, you know, between other things. Um, And then it just so happened. And again, it was a perfect storm. Like Matt Bertulli, founder of Pila Case and Lomi, moved his his headquarters to Kelowna, BC. And frankly, when you're in the East Coast, you don't even know Kelowna exists, right? You know, it's a place somewhere out there. And he moved and he was, we call him patient zero because he was the first amongst all of our friends to kind of like move out here and start a life out here. And then what happened was COVID. And I think COVID was a forcing function to get everyone to think like, do I like where I live? Do I like who I live with? Do I enjoy working in this capacity? Do I, if I were to be cooped up in any city in the world and COVID were to happen again, would it be the city that I currently live in? And these questions kind of like, you know, started to proliferate in our minds. Um, Honestly, I had no intention of moving out to Kelowna. It was the middle of COVID. We wanted to travel. Canadian didn't let you travel outside of Canada at the time. So we're like, we got to travel somewhere within Canada. So we said, hey, well, a few of our friends just kind of went to this Kelowna place. Let's go check it out and see what it's like and just kind of get a nice vacation of it. We planned a 10-day vacation. On day five, my wife turns to me and says, Do you think we can move here? I said, Absolutely. So we spent the next five days of our vacation looking for a house and made an offer on a house before we left. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. Then we moved back home and, like, oh, shoot, we got to sell our house. Um, Silver Lighting is uh, Nick Nurse, the head coach of the Toronto Raptors, ended up buying the home that we built in Toronto. So there's a nice, cool story there. We ended up moving to Kelowna without really an idea of what was going to happen. But again, the perfect storm is COVID. At that time, during an 18-month window, there were probably 12 different families that moved into Kelowna, of all of which we knew each other. So I think it was that, a bunch of new people moving together who already knew each other into a brand new place. So it's not like we had to make new friends as much as we knew our communities. And we had these extended communities like our mountain biking community and our weight surfing community and our business entrepreneurial community. And things just started to do that. And then... A combination of that perfect storm mixed with like some just great people. Like Kelowna has bred some amazing people like yourself, like people we've met who've lived here for a long time. That combination of storm literally led to saying, you know, at first it was this official thing where we would have this rotation of dinners once a month in different people's homes. Um, That didn't stay too well because it was too kind of official. Um, and now it's are just people saying, Hey, we're, we're in this together. Let's make the most of it. And everyone taking an initiative to call people out, to do stuff, to hang out, to have a mastermind. Like we have a mastermind group that we meet once a, once a month and go over some stuff. And obviously our families that we, we vacation together. There was 12 families, 22 adults, was, sorry, uh, 18 adults, 22 children, um, that went to Croatia together and we were there for 10 days, you know, on a super yacht traveling the the, the Adriatic. And we do that together. We went to Cabo together. There's just like a lot of that happening. So I say I like to say like half of it was orchestrated. The other half was was very spontaneous. But I think what it requires is a bunch of people who are on the same path saying, I'm interested in community. I don't exactly know what it looks like and then for people to really take the initiative to start planning and saying hey i'm going to host a dinner come on over to our house or i'm going to host a barbecue or let's go to vacation together and as that starts to form you can start to see greater bonds you know form as a result of that so that would be my thing like if you want that friend find people that are on the same you know like wavelength as you and then be the initiator cuz not everyone is going to initiate but to initiate initiate potential events where people can get together and then just let it let it serendipitously um, unfold
1: yeah no that that makes so much sense and, and being the initiator is really key because sometimes it's easy to sit on the sidelines i got a personal story i remember being in high school at the time and I, I i had like some really great uh friendships and relationships with around me but there was like a season i don't know if you know how kids are like i was probably like a week like, like a month and i was like hey how come i'm not uh my my buddies aren't calling me all the time and so I, I spoke to my my um, uh, my dad about this and he's like, well, don't ask me. Maybe go and ask your um, your youth leader because I was going to a church uh, youth group at that time. So I went and I spoke to the youth leader guy and he looks at me and he says, well, how many of them have you called? That was the extent of our conversation. That's
0: all I and, needed. Yeah, uh, sure.
1: that's all, that was all I needed. And I realized, oh, I was I was sitting on the sidelines waiting for my phone to ring. I wasn't doing any initiating. So as soon as I heard that, I could just flip the script. And of course, um, my friends were stoked to hang out. They just, I just wasn't calling them. <laughs> we just
0: the call. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. And so it's, it's funny how like, um, uh, so that, that point of, of, uh, that, that, uh, you know, so it's almost like think about like what community can look like. Think about the people that you might want to have in your community who are on the same wavelength as you. And, uh, and then just start reaching out. And, you know, it could be, could be simple things. could be a dinner, it could be coffee, it could be uh, a bite to eat or whatever it is. Um, And uh, I, I that's such, such wise advice. So moving forward uh, for a second here, the, so now, so you've, you've got, you've got a very successful uh, business on Facebook and um, like your, uh, you know, I, I, you're, you're, you're doing well. I'm, you know, you, you, it's like things are going really good. How, um, what would you want to share to a business that's considering running ads on, on Facebook or has looked at Facebook, um, you know, around how do you think about advertising? How do you think about your return, your ROI? Like, is there, is there
0: a formula that you use <clears throat> when running campaigns? Yeah, it's a great question and there's a couple angles to look at it, but I think where the people would be best served is I think there's a misunderstanding of Facebook or any platform for that matter um, that advertising is like magical pixie dust, right? You just like sprinkle it and all of a sudden massive growth happens and all your marketing concerns go away and you you blow up your business and everything is awesome. And I, I I say that because there's so many people who, who just come to me like ah oh, just can, Nick can you help us with some meta ads can you help us with ads and marketing on on social platforms, and nine times out of ten I'll be say I'll say no and I'll say why is like well we need to look at your business because advertising is like an accelerator right so if you have a great product and a great offer and everything is dialed in and proven to work and you know your economics and they all pan out and if I would ask you what's your CAC what's your customer acquisition cost you know that answer to the T. If i were to ask you what your lifetime value is you'd know the exact answer to the t because marketing is a numbers game now i hate numbers and i hate maths like it's just not my thing i think i failed it in high school but i do recognize that marketing is not emotional it's it's not it's data driven right so if i were to ask a company or ask you whoever's watching or listening to this what is the lifetime value of a customer to you and you don't know that answer if i say what does it cost to acquire a new customer for you and you don't know that answer Advertising is the last thing you want to do because it'll just bury you, right? Uh, the other question you have to ask is, do I actually need advertising, right? Because advertising is a great accelerator to scale something. But if you've got like a, a a financial services business or you've got some sort of a business that you can really grow word of mouth or or through referrals or some other way where you don't need to advertise the heck out of the thing, do that because that's way less stress and and. and I mean, it may not be as predictable, but like you have a system and just do your thing, right? So, you know, even before anybody starts, the question is, do you really need advertising? Number one. Number two, do you know your data and your metrics in order to be able to advertise? And if you say yes to those two things, then advertising could be a role that you play. And then in that case, I would suggest thinking of things like meta as a platform, meta being Facebook and Facebook channels, Instagram and all that, um, as a platform because they've really made it Fairly easy to do what I call micro-marketing. So back in the day, the goal was mass marketing, right? It's the most coveted spot on any type of advertising platform was the 30-second spot on a Super Bowl commercial, right? If you could get 30 seconds Super Bowl commercial, it used to cost a million dollars for that spot. I think it's like $4 million now or something like that. Um, and the question I would always ask is like, why would any company pay $4 million for a 30-second spot? And the answer was always eyeballs. We just want eyeballs, man. The amount of people watching the Super Bowls in the tens, if not hundreds of millions, Like we want the eyeballs. And that was a good strategy way back then. But friend, financial advisor, you don't want eyeballs, right? Whatever company you have, you don't want eyeballs. You want specific eyeballs. And so rather than the concept back in the day of mass marketing, what I encourage people to do is what I call micro marketing. But that only means Is having your message go in front of your ideal prospect like that i know that's a novel thought but what if only the people who are interested in your product and or service saw your ad and not everybody else what could that mean for how you spend money on advertising and what could that mean and how would that be different for you to actually communicate through your marketing right so i think that's an important thing it's like we need to shift from mass marketing to micro marketing We need to shift from this idea of like pixie dust to economics and understanding like basic metrics when you do marketing. Um, and then if you start there and I'm Jonathan, I'm happy to go deeper into any of that, but if that's a good starting place, then you can actually just frame marketing in a much better context because I think that most of the people, not most, a lot of people who are considering marketing or advertising on social channels are probably not ready for it yet. And that will just end up being a whole bunch of like hardship versus it being a channel for you to really see, you know, growth.
1: And that makes a ton of sense. I'm just going to quickly define some of those those terms for people who are listening, who uh, who, who maybe are unfamiliar or are from an industry where they use just different words. So CAC just co- like cost to acquire a customer. You're talking about LTV, like your lifetime value. So how much is that customer worth to you over the lifetime of your customer? And uh, I th- oh, was there any others? I think. You they you, you, you kind of rambled off about three or right, four. Right, I, but know. Those, yeah, I those are the two I think that probably get, so as long as, and then is there a ratio? Like, do you look at the value of the customer uh, compared to the cost to acquire? Is there a ratio there that you look for?
0: Yeah, I mean, there, there most definitely is. I mean, here, here's the other thing with advertising. Advertising online is getting busier and busier. And so if you're a single SKU company, like you sell one item and one item only, and it's a lower ticket item, let's say, you know, for example, like our good friend Matt Petuli sells phone cases. Um, now, he doesn't have one SKU. He's got a bunch of phone cases. But, you know, and let's say it costs 60 bucks or 70 bucks or whatever it costs. Like, marketing is a lot more difficult if your only profit margin is that first initial transaction. Like, if you're selling a $70 thing and you've got to be profitable on that $70 thing and that's the only way you can see profits, marketing becomes that much harder. If, however, you know, you sell phone cases and other accessories and all this other stuff where you can increase your lifetime value of a customer. So the time, the, the amount that a customer spends with you over the lifetime is high. Then you can see marketing or acquisition as a one-to-one ratio. So just for simple simple, simple numbers, if I had a high lifetime value with multiple products that took me to that high lifetime value, I would almost see my initial transaction as a one-to-one ratio. So whatever I spend to get the customer should be right around what I make from that customer. Now, I know that doesn't sound like good business sense, but the reality is if you can acquire a customer for free for the same value that you've made to acquire, then you know that everything else that that customer buys over their lifetime is 100% profit to you. It's a very good place to be when you're considering marketing. Now, if what you sell is only one product and the value of that product is essentially the lifetime value from that. I mean, you're essentially, the the, the, the ideal members that we look for is a one to three ratio. So you spend one third the cost to acquire the value of that customer. Some people see it as one to two. So 50% of the value you use to acquire. Um, and some people do a little bit more than that. But I think that's more of a business process conversation because if anyone ever comes to me and says I've got a single SKU one product and that's the lifetime value of what I have uh, from that customer before I ever, ever would say let's spend money on marketing I'd say let's look at multiple ways to increase that lifetime value so that you have room to be more aggressive in your marketing if that makes sense
1: yeah that makes tons of sense so so you got to have a big enough margin that it actually makes sense for you to advertise because advertising as you said is a way to scale which means you can reach more and more and more customers but you uh you need to have the margin in order to afford that that growth vehicle now so um if you're looking at uh let's i'm thinking let's pretend for a moment that the that somebody's got a campaign that's successful they uh they've they've you know they've created an ad they've created a funnel maybe they got a landing page they've it's it's working and um, and they have a tiny bit of of spread, and so they're they're making let's say it's somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, twenty to one hundred percent profit. So um, yeah, so so they're they're doing okay. Um, their cost is, is is covered. They can pay their overhead. They can pay their cost of goods sold, and and away they go. What um, what would you recommend to them when it comes to scaling? So how would you take that campaign and go bigger?
0: Yeah, I love that. Um, without getting too technical, cause we don't know the technical prowess of those who are, are on this call and, and the advertising side, uh, in its simplest form, you can scale two ways. You can scale laterally or wide and you can scale deep, right? And if you truly want to scale, you need a little bit of both. So an example of that is, you know, one of our clients right now, um, I mean, there's a bunch, but one that comes to mind right now, we're spending approximately like 60 grand a day on, on their campaigns. Um, now you can't do that just with one technique. You need to, to, to do multiple things. So scaling deep is saying, okay, I have this ad that's running to a particular audience. Um, that's our targeting and I'm spending a particular dollar amount to do that. Couple ways to scale deep within that audience is to increase your budget, right? So let's say you're spending hundred dollars a day. Well, if all things pan out equal and you spend $200 a day, you've now kind of doubled, Your scale, if you will. Now, it's not a perfect science. So don't everyone go out and say, hey, we're spending $1,000 a day. Let's spend $2,000 a day. Doesn't quite work like that, but that's a starting point. You start increasing your budgets, right? Another thing is well, if we know that that audience is working well, how can we create more creatives that go after that particular audience? Meaning, you know, everyone has a different buying. I, I call them transactional triggers. Everybody has a different reason or is triggered to transact in different ways. And if we've got this one ad that's like crushing it, we've got to realize that that one ad is only really talking about one type of transactional trigger. So if we can understand the, the transactional triggers of our prospects, what if instead of just having one ad at $100 a day going to that audience, what if we had two or a three or four? Right, So now we're spanning that audience even bigger and we're trying to tap on different transactional triggers so that more people start buying. That's another way to scale. But another way to scale beyond that is, well, if this audience is working really well and we've gone from spending one to two to $300 a day and instead of spending $300 a day on one ad set, now we're spending it on three different ads. Now we're at $900 a day just for that one audience. Well, could there be other audiences and or targets that we could do the same with and so rather than just target email one let's think about other audience that will respond well to our product and or our service and we do the same sort of thing there we started start running ads we find what works we increase the budget great beyond increasing the budget we start opening up other different ad, ad creatives to that particular audience and now you could see you could do that multiple times and you can go very easily for spending a hundred dollars a day to spending know, $1,000 or $10,000 a day by doing that strategy. And now you start to see scale. Now, of course, you need to watch that and monitor and make it make sense. But those are like the two ideas on how you can scale both deep and wide to be able to, again, rather than just relying on, oh, let's just increase our budget on the one working ad, think about other ways that you can reach more people within that audience and more audiences with a variety of creatives.
1: So when you're coming up with new creatives, are you um do you test a new creative one at a time against the other ones that are already working or would you test uh like multiple new creatives at the same time? How how do you approach that?
0: Yeah, I love that question. And I think for simplicity's sake and for the sake of this conversation, you know, uh, direct response marketing 101 simply states always have a control and always have a variable. Right? Meaning you're running one creative and you're seeing how well it works. And let's say you're getting a cost per act for easy numbers. You're acquiring a customer for $100 on this creative. right? And let's say that works for you because your value of that customer is $300 and you're uh, uh, acquiring a customer for $100. Cool. Um, the easiest way to go about this is, okay, we have this control. This is our baseline. Let's come up with another creative, which we call our variable to see if we can beat that one. So we release another creative and we say, hey, this one's now um, getting acquisition costs at $80 when this one is becoming $100, cool. This now becomes our new control because it's getting the best result. And then we come up with another creative to try and compete against that one. Let's say we release a third creative and we're like, oh, this one's getting customers at $120. We dump this one, we keep the control and we introduce a new variable. So." Our general rule of thumb for anyone who's just kind of basic direct response marketing 101 is always have one control and one variable. And by, by testing just one thing at a time, that's where you can start to see what performs better and run with your winners and dump your losers.
1: That that's, yeah, that's, that's really great framework. And then how do you, um, you know, with the Facebook's algorithm, uh, or, or Meta's algorithm, the way that, um, Sometimes they'll put you in front of the, uh, the wrong subset of your audience when you're testing. And so it looks like the cost is higher than it really is. How do you approach that uh, problem when you're, when you're testing a new campaign, when you don't have enough data yet to know, is it the ad or is it the
0: audience? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, part of, part of the, the process of running ads is narrowing down your audience as much as possible, right? Because if you open open broad audience categories, you're Right. Facebook may find the wrong subset of it and you just don't know. And so that's the kind of problem with broad targeting. So what we like to say is when you're starting with your targeting, be as narrow as possible to start because we'd want to identify the winners. Now, once you start identifying the winners, then we can open up the targeting in the broad because the second thing happens is Facebook without getting into the depths of the algorithm has the ability to start to understand based on, on how people are responding to your ads, the type of people that you're looking for. Some people call this training the pixel or whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day is the more data you have running through your ad account and the more you confirm that these are the people who are buying stuff from us, the more intelligent the AI in the algorithm becomes and says, oh, well, Jonathan is looking for these types of people and they're much better at finding your demographic. So what we like to say is always start your campaigns narrow to feed the algorithm with the type of people that you're going for. Hit your lowest hanging fruit, get some transactions going. And when you start doing that, Facebook in and of itself becomes more and more intelligent. And as it becomes more and more intelligent about the type of buyer you're going after, you know, it can start to find those people. That's an easy way to answer it. Of course, there's everything from the campaign objectives that you select and what kind of objectives you're going for, which also targets a different type of person and whatnot. But I think that's a good starting for point for people to just start consider, how do I, you know, go after my lowest hanging fruit first? And then you have the ability to kind of like open things up after that
1: so so once you have a direct response campaign um, and it's working and maybe you've got two three four different angles and they all seem to be working roughly within in your your margin that you're you're comfortable with um how do you do you recommend um doing any sort of remarketing uh and, and how do you look at that
0: yeah that's a great question so for those who may not know remarketing simply is you know if you're running ads to an audience that's cold Um, who's never known you before, never seen you, you know, we consider that cold remarketing is basically running ads to anybody who's somehow in your ecosystem. So someone who's viewed an ad, someone who's engaged with an ad, someone who's went on your website, someone who started a process, maybe added something to a cart, but didn't check out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So anyone who's technically warm and warm just means they already had a point of contact with you. So what remarketing allows you to do is take these ads and put them in front of people who are already familiar with you. And the first thing I want to say about that is you have to be doing that. Those are your best best potential customers, right? People who have some familiarity with you, whether they went on a website, they added something to a cart, they're part of a newsletter list or whatever. These are your best prospects. So you definitely want to have a category that focuses on that. How I like to see remarketing is there's three directions you can push someone in a remarketing sequence. We'll call them forward, back, and around. Um, For simplest terms, forward would be the next step in the process. So let's say that someone was viewing a certain product on your website. Let's tell you you sell an e-commerce trinket or something like that. They've seen the page, but they haven't done anything with it. What you can do in your remarketing is remarket an ad to that person and basically push them to the cart so you can say hey this product that you were looking at let's take you to the next step in the process which is adding your thing to the cart and checking out or maybe you added to the cart so you'd push them to the cart to finish the checkout process that would be an example of pushing someone forward in the buying process pushing someone back would be sending them back to a page that they already visited to take the next step in the in the in the equation so again let's use this e-commerce example for example um, they're looking at a pair of shoes, and this has probably happened to some of our viewers. You're on Amazon or whatever, or some civil war website. You're looking at a pair of shoes, and now as you've gone off that website and you're looking at other things, those shoes seem to follow you everywhere you go. And you're like, damn it, what's going on? How do I know it's because you were on that page and you want to send them back to the page that they originally inquired about? So that would be send something back. Then around would be, let's say you're looking at a pair of shoes. So I, I recognize as a marketer, oh, you're probably interested in this style of shoe, but you didn't buy that shoe. So instead of sending you either forward to the checkout process or back to the same page of the shoe that you didn't buy, I can forward you or send you across to another shoe that is similar in nature, but maybe it's kind of more up your alley, right? So it's, it's an important to think that when we're doing any sort of re-t- remarketing, retargeting, that there's three directions that we could send people into. And frankly, we should be sending them to all three. Um, That is really starting to create a bit of an ecosystem where you're surround, we call it surround sounding, right? You're surrounding that individual with options to either buy the thing that they wanted to, revisit the thing that they wanted to look at, or send them to other things that are similar to the original thing. And again, the more you can do that intelligently, the higher likely you are to have that person transact with you on some level.
1: That's, that's great. Now, um, is there anything obvious that people, like when you're looking at ads, people tend to miss and you're just like, this is so obvious.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, how about this? I mean, yes, there's a million things, but I think one of the things that people don't recognize is the actual role of the ad, right? So whenever you usurp roles, uh, bad things tend to happen. So what I mean by that is what, if I were to ask, you know, the public here, what is the point of the ad? Most people who are uneducated in the marketing game would say, well, the point of the ad is to sell the thing. And in my world, that's not true. That's not the point of the ad. The point of the ad is to create a click to the page, and the page's job is to sell the thing, right? So if you use the ad to try and sell the thing, you're kind of skipping steps. The page was designed to sell the thing. The ad is designed to create curiosity for you to click to go over to the page that sells the thing. So one of the biggest problems I see often when people are writing ads is they're using the ads to sell the thing and they're like, well, Nick, the ad's not working well. Yeah, you've, you've forgotten the ideal purpose of the ad itself. If you can get back to remembering what that is, then you let each step in the process fulfill the will it was designed to fill, then you'll start to see better results.
1: Yeah, and that makes so much sense. And we all have experienced that. You walk into a store and a person starts selling you something and you're not ready there. You know, that that's not the stage you're at but when you get to that step that you're now like okay I've kind of zoned in I've locked in I want to get um you know back to the stereo like let's say I'm looking for surround sound I'm like okay I'm in the department I'm looking for it I know I'm kind of uh, I'm looking for this you know five speaker surround sound system who can help me at this moment and so now you're in a different frame of mind but it feels weird when you have an ad that's trying to sell you on something right yes like it yeah. feels it, it feels
0: well, it feels wrong well especially on social too because we've got to recognize that um, you know, if you were on Amazon and you saw an ad, that doesn't make you feel weird because you're like, well, I'm on it. I'm buying stuff. Of course, I'm going to see ads to buy stuff. If you go on eBay, you know, these are all commerce driven platforms. If you're on a Shopify page, of course, you're there with an intention to buy. There's no like, hmm, about it. But nobody wakes up in the morning, credit card in hand, logs onto Facebook or Instagram and says, I wonder what I could buy today from Instagram, Right. So, if you just recognize the very channel itself, and the channel is social, it's not uh, commerce driven. Now, of course, commercial activities happen on the channel, but that's not the original intent why the 65 year old grandmother wakes up and logs on to, to Facebook is to see what their grandkids are up to. It's not to buy the thing that you have to offer. So, once we recognize that simple premise that it's a social platform, not a commerce platform, and we need to act in accordance. With the platform, I call that contextual congruence. It's being congruent to the context of the platform that you're on. Um, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, a story I tell is like if me and you were having a barbecue in my backyard today, um, I I would if somebody walked in through the side door into the back and joined a little group and started selling me a vacuum cleaner, I'd be pretty damn pissed off. Not because they're trying to send me a vacuum cleaner, although maybe I don't need one and that would be annoying but that was not the time nor the place to sell me a vacuum cleaner. I'm at a barbecue. I'm with my friends. Think of social the same way, right? Social is a place where people are having their backyard barbecue. And if all you do is come into the scene and sell, 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 you're like that uninvited vacuum cleaner salesman who's trying to push you away into stuff, right? The better better process would be is Maybe you're a vacuum cleaner, salesperson, and you got invited to the party. Cool. Well, hang out. And then somebody says in the group, oh, man, my vacuum cleaner broke. I'd rule love ideas for new vacuum cleaners. That would be an appropriate time for you to maybe bring up the fact that you sell vacuum cleaners and you offer some value in advance and say, hey, here's what you probably should look at when you're considering buying a vacuum cleaner. they are be like, oh, that was super helpful. And you can continue that process. So it's just understanding the context of the platform that you're playing on and staying congruent to that context
1: totally that makes total sense that really does now where do you see advertising going um as far as uh you, you know we got browsers are changing the, the pixels changing everything's changing where, where do you see the future of advertising um as far as like where it's come from over the last decade to where do you think it's going to be uh, uh sort of effective in the next decade
0: yeah, it's a great question, and I don't know how much future out this is, but like with, these, with some of the advancements with AI and some of these other learning protocols and whatnot, I wouldn't be surprised that you will get to a point where even retail, not just like online, but you will walk into a store and some machine will somehow, the moment you walk in through that front door, scan your eyes and identify exactly who you are and start making recommendations of size and colors and all that, Based on what they know to be true about you and start just making recommendations that way. Right. Like, I think that is the future of advertising. And, and truth be told, that's what Facebook and Instagram was always intended to be. Right. What I mean by that is like it gathers all this data from us, from our usage of these platforms. And then in a the perfect world, it would only design to show us ads of things that we are interested in. And you know, you, we all know that, 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 that example of like, Being on a, a, you know, having, I don't know, talked about buying a swimming pool or whatever, you know, having that in conversation, maybe searching for it on the internet and then logging onto Facebook and seeing an ad for the exact same pool that you would love to have in the shape that you'd love it. And you're almost thinking to yourself, well, how do they know that? Right. That's what it was designed to do. Now, unfortunately, because of some of our searching behaviors and because of some of the stuff that we mention and whatnot, And because of advertisers not fully understanding their prospects, so they're showing their ads to people who are totally not interested, like it hasn't created that experience. But in in its very creation, the Facebook newsfeed and the ads that we see are supposed to be 100% curated for our interests so that it would be a very pleasant experience because like, oh... That's very helpful. I needed that. That's what I'm looking for. Thank you. I might not need this now, but it's appropriate that you showed it to me. And so I think as AI gets better, as the algorithm starts learning better and all this kind of stuff, um, I think advertising in general is really going to be a curated experience for the user so that they're not, uh, 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 what's, what's the right word? Like they don't detest the advertising experience because they're actually be happy about it because it's everything that they've been thinking about and wanting. So I think, again, both in an online context and an offline context a retail context, I think once the AIs and the, and the algorithms get smart enough, um, that's the future of advertising. Where, again, you as an advertiser can upload a whole bunch of stuff and say, hey, these are what we can offer to these types of people. The IAI will look for those people and start providing AI or curated experiences to those people to say, Hey, you know, these are the only things that people need to see because that is what they're actually looking for at the time.
1: Yeah, no, that that actually that sounds really interesting. I, I'm I'm excited for that because I think that's where advertising is really useful. And I also think marketing, it has it has such a powerful purpose. I mean, like without marketing, as a as a consumer, we're limited on our choice. But with with really good marketing, you actually learn about solutions that you didn't know were available to solve the problem that you have. And I think this is part of Like someone might have an incredible invention, but if you don't know that that invention exists, it's not actually very useful. You know, utility is actually both in the, the fact that the invention exists and that we are able to put it into play and marketing gets it in front of people, the right people, hopefully, so that they can benefit from this new invention. And that's how society gets a little bit better every year. And so I, I actually think marketing is a huge, and I love your, um, your message. On on your email, by the way, something uh, I forgot to says, something like, uh, you you're going to impact more people with your marketing than you ever will with your product, and I, I feel like that is that is such a true thing. And people sometimes under, um, they don't they don't realize the impact that they are having in the marketplace simply by the message that they're putting out there and and how they're communicating and and what they're doing. So, um, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um i wanna to, totally wanna to respect your time uh we're we're at the hour and so um is there anything that you would like to uh, that you'd like to leave the audience with here
0: you know i i think the most important thing is to you know and it's a good it's a good dovetail and a bow to what we're saying here is that I see marketing not as necessarily a means simply to acquire a new customer. That's a great benefit and a side benefit that happens with good marketing. And I love that. But to your point, marketing is your means to change the world. Marketing is your means to get intelligent products and intelligent services in front of the people that need it. And if you are an entrepreneur that has a business, it is your moral obligation to get that product out to the world if you know it can be helpful and beneficial to a family. or or to an individual or to another business or to whatever. So I would never want someone, I guess the the summary is don't see marketing as a capital expense to your business. See it as the reason you exist. It is the, you need to get the message and your ideas out to the people who need to see it so they can transact with you and have an impact on their life. If you could see marketing from that perspective, I think it'll be super helpful. And Jonathan, if like, I have a free newsletter that goes out Every Thursday morning, uh, completely free. It's just nicholaskuzmic.co. So n i c h o l a s k u s m i c h dot c o. Um, along with that, you get a free copy of my book. Give and if, if marketing is of interest to people, um, you know, there's just a great a great free resource there that'll, that'll get you caught up on all the latest and greatest things on on how to do that intelligently and ethically in a way that's kind of really aligned with your with your beliefs. Oh wow,
1: so cool. So uh that's uh nicholas uh Kuzmich.co.
0: Co. yeah and that'll just take you yeah, to the page I'm, where you can can sign up for the newsletter
1: okay and if you're if you're listening to this podcast you'll find that link in the uh uh the show notes and if you see this on youtube you can find it in the description and uh we'll make sure that uh yeah that, that's great i'm actually going to sign up for that right now so that's awesome. perfect <laughs> yeah well, man, I appreciate you. This has been tons of fun. You have a fascinating story. I would love to, I would love to interview you again in the near future. Absolutely, um, There are so many points that I was thinking, like, I'm like, oh, that would be really interesting. That would be really interesting. So, yeah, you, you should write a book. You've got to write a personal story. It's so interesting yeah yeah maybe one day
0: i mean we we wrote a book on marketing and it was a very difficult long tiresome process so the idea of writing something again is is uh is a is a challenge but i think with all the new tools and resources available there may be an opportunity to do that in a lot easier of a way
1: yeah it'd be super cool i know i would read it for sure i appreciate that well thanks man yeah no
0: thanks for your time it was a great
1: call